Now, Romans chapter 3, please. Romans chapter 3, look with me. I'll just, for a little bit of context, start at verse 21, but I'm going to bear down on verse 23 and 24. Romans 3, 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we are, many of us are familiar with that verse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 23 and then verse 24 though. Being justified, that is sinners, being justified or declared righteous as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And then also, if you look at the back of the hymnal, we'll talk about this. For those of you who may not be familiar with Presbyterianism, the Westminster Confession of Faith is those standards that we hold under the Scripture. We believe the Scripture is our only inerrant and infallible authority uh, but we also believe that the Westminster Confession of Faith is one of the best human expressions of what the Bible teaches. So chapter 11, page 926 in the hymnal, section 1, chapter 11 of justification. Those whom God effectually calleth, he also freely justifieth, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins, and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, nor by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them. That is, your faith is not a work that is a merit. That's all that that's saying there. It's your faith is only an instrument of laying hold of Jesus. And it's Jesus's righteousness that you receive. But by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves. It is a gift of God. So we can't boast. Even our faith comes from God. Number two, faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and His righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification. Yet is it not alone in the person justified. That is, you're justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Okay, All true faith will produce works. Yet is it not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces, and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. Number three, Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those that are thus justified. He paid for it all. And did make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to his Father's justice in their behalf. Yet, inasmuch as he was given by the Father for them, and his obedience and satisfaction accepted in their stead, 
and both freely, not for anything in them, their justification is only of free grace, that both the exact justice and rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. Number four, God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect. And Christ did, in the fullness of time, die for their sins and rise again for their justification. Nevertheless, they are not justified until what? Until the Holy Spirit doth in due time actually apply Christ unto them. That is, you're not saved from eternity past. You're saved the moment you believe, and the moment you believe is when the Holy Spirit came in and gave you faith, okay? So even though God ordained that you would be justified from the eternity past, the moment of justification happened sometime in your life, okay? And and that was when the Spirit of God came into your heart. Number five, God doth continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified, and although they can never fall from the state of justification, yet they may by their sins, fall under God's fatherly displeasure and not have the light of his countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. And then finally, number six, the justification of believers under the Old Testament was, in all these respects, one and the same with the justification of believers under the New Testament. That's mainly just saying here that that Old Testament saints, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, and all the rest, they're justified just the same way you and I are. They're justified through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. They looked ahead to the coming of Christ. Jesus said, Abraham saw my day from a distance and rejoiced in it. We have the privilege of looking back with obviously more information than they ever had, but we are still all justified by grace alone, through faith alone. Now let's look at it from the perspective of the Scriptures. Going back here to this famous chapter, Romans 3. Now Romans is probably one of the great books. I was telling the boys in Sunday school this morning, and I say boys because our Kate left, and off to better teachers. So we're, we're, we have all the boys now. Me and Zeke and the boys. And so we were talking this morning that, um, you know, you should read widely in your Bible. Um, But also, let me say not but, but and, you should also maybe choose a a book or two that you want to almost become an expert in. You know, it's a book that you go to again and again and, and read and really get to know. And I told the boys, I said, you know, you're going to be hard-pressed to do better than the book of Romans. Um, And I told them the story that when I was a a young minister in my 20s, I said that I was not going to preach through the book of Romans until I was in my 40s because I wanted a level of seasoned maturity (laughs) before I was taking on this book. But I'm glad that I changed my mind. And I took it up at age 33 and completed it at age 37. We went for over four years in the book of Romans, and I've had the privilege of two and a half times at least preaching it through again at the college. And I was glad I did that because I think the book of Romans probably was more transformative in my understanding of the mind of the Lord uh, than any other book that I've ever read or studied. Uh, There's so much that is dealt with here. 
And this is such a great book because this is where the gospel, I think, is so unpacked for us here. And particularly tonight, as we talk about the doctrine of justification. Now, what is the doctrine of justification? The doctrine of justification, it is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardoneth our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight, in the sight of God, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. That's the shorter catechism answer. To put it more simply, even than that, is this, that a sinner believes on Jesus Christ by the grace of God alone. God works in our life. He gives us the Spirit of God. He opens our eyes. He opens our ears. He softens our hearts. He moves our will. And suddenly, that may be for which we weren't even particularly looking for. We find Jesus and believe on Jesus Christ and the good news of the offer that anyone who believes on him shall not be condemned but be saved from our sins. Obviously, for example, in Acts chapter 9, Saul was not looking for Jesus. Saul already thought he knew what the truth was. Saul was persecuting the church at the beginning of Acts chapter 9, and by the end of chapter 9, he's what? He's worshiping God through Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ. What happened was the Spirit of God came into his life and changed his heart, his mind, his will, everything about him, and he gave Paul the ability with the eyes of faith to see Jesus and believe on him. Now, the moment that that happens, sometimes it happens to people in, in adulthood, Sometimes it happens to them in their teenage years. Sometimes it happens to them as very, very young children. Let me tell you something. Sometimes it happens prenatally. Right, Savannah? <laughs> Sometimes it happens in the womb. John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist had the Spirit of God in the womb. Now, he obviously didn't have the maturity to express a full uh, adult-like faith in Jesus Christ, but he truly, by God's grace, somehow was trusting in Christ. Uh, he had been regenerated. He leapt in his mother's womb at the sound of Mary's voice. We know this from the Bible. The point is this. You don't need to know when that date was. You, you just need to know that you are believing in Jesus Christ today. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, I don't have to know what time the sun rose in the morning to know that I'm in the daylight now. Uh, so we, we don't need to necessarily know. Now, if you know, that's great. God sometimes does that. I know, I know the year. I don't know exactly the date in my own life. I was, but I was probably 20 years old at the time in college. And what happens is, is that God, by his grace, gives us the ability to believe. Now look at Romans 3.21. This is the great inflection point here where Paul transitions from the bad news to the good news. The bad news is lined out for you in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2. So that by the time you, you get to Romans 3, you get to this inflection point where Paul has said, look, you, you can't be saved by natural revelation. You, you can't go to the mountains of Colorado and find yourself and find God, okay? You're, you're, general revelation 
doesn't tell you explicitly that Jesus has died for your sins and been raised from the dead. How shall they know unless a preacher be sent? That's what the Bible tells us here. You're not going to find it even by trusting in your own righteousness through the works of the law, if you're a Jew, Paul says. So whether you were a Gentile back then or whether you were a Jew trying to obey the law of God, you were never going to come to a righteousness through your own effort. But notice what Paul says in 3.21. He says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. That is, now, even though the law pointed to the righteousness of God, the righteousness was not to be manifested or made most plain in the law, but it was to be most plain in the person of Jesus. Notice that Paul says it's witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets were always preaching and teaching about Christ. Go to Christ. Go to Christ. The Jews were always supposed to learn that point. They were always supposed to learn the point that the law of Moses teaches me that I need a Messiah. The law and the prophets told me that I was a sinner and I needed a Savior. But many of the Jews in their day, just like many in the mainline church today, they lose the gospel, and what happens? They begin to think that it's all about getting your own righteousness and doing your own righteousness. You see, we are facing the same thing in Protestant churches today that, are, that have lost the gospel. They don't believe in the deity of Christ. They don't believe in the resurrection. And what do you do on Sunday? When you don't believe in those things. Well, you got to tell people that they're pretty good and I'll, my job is to make you a little bit better. If, if you don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, if you don't believe in the deity of Christ, well, you got to do something for 30 minutes. And so you, you tell the people that they're pretty good people. And uh, here's how you can be just an inch better than pretty good, you know. There's nothing. And, and so the, you try to, the, the congregation is left trying to produce their own righteousness. Well, that was the same problem in the Old Testament. Is they would read the law and they'd read the prophets and they got the wrong message a lot of time. Now, not all of them. Thankfully, God saved a lot of people in the Old Testament. But there were also a number of them who didn't understand the gospel as it was taught to them through the law and the prophets. So now Paul is saying here that this is not a new way of salvation but that the way of salvation is just made all the more clear in Jesus Christ. Moses preached Christ. Abraham preached Christ. Noah preached Christ. Isaiah preached Christ. Jeremiah preached Christ. Ezekiel preached Christ. All the way to Malachi. Everybody preached Jesus Christ in the Old Testament and from the Old Testament. Jesus said in John 5, search the scriptures in them. You think you have eternal life. He said, they speak about me. The Old Testament is all about Jesus. We are supposed to find Jesus. In the Old Testament, what Paul is saying is that now, though Jesus has come, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. What is that righteousness? It is the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is witnessed by Moses. It is witnessed by the law and the prophets. And then look at verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You mean to tell me Moses was preaching justification by faith? Yes, absolutely, friends. Listen to, again, section 6 here. The justification of believers under the Old Testament was, in all these respects, one and the same. 
with the justification of believers under the New Testament. Moses was always preaching justification by faith alone in Jesus alone to the glory of God alone. David was always preaching justification by faith alone. Look at Psalm 51 sometime. David doesn't put any hope in anyone or anything else other than the mercy of God. After he committed adultery with Bathsheba, he recognizes that he is utterly dependent upon the grace of God to deliver him from this sin and this evil that he's done. He's murdered a man. He murdered Uriah by ordering Uriah to the front and pushing him up too close to the battle line and then telling the compatriots of Uriah to pull back, leaving him exposed to the archers on the wall. And David says in Psalm 51 that he was just a complete and total sinner. Nothing but the mercy of God, the grace of God in Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah, will deliver me from this. David realizes that his son, the son of David, will have to deliver him. So, Paul goes on, he says, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Again, as if to summarize Romans chapter 1 and 2 for us in verse 23, he says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Whether you're a civically minded pagan like Plato trying to discover what is the good and, and what is righteousness, uh, whether you are a notorious sinner who doesn't care, you're just a hedonist, you are living for yourself and for pleasure, whether you're a Jew who's concerned about the law, whatever type of person you are and whatever your background, Paul is saying here to this first century church is he's saying it doesn't matter. Whatever your background is, everybody has sinned and everybody falls short of the glory of God. All mouths will be closed on the day of judgment. There will be nobody who will boast in themselves when the omniscient God opens the books and looks at our lives. The only hope that any and all of us have is Jesus Christ. And so that's the good news here. Notice what the next verse says. After Paul has shut us all up under condemnation, he's condemned all of humanity, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. There's no hope for anybody in themselves. What does he do? He said, yet, here's the good news that sinners may be justified as a gift by his grace through redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. And there we find, friends, that magical word, justified. Justification, that's our subject tonight. What does that mean, to be justified? What it means is that while everybody is a sinner, by nature, under the wrath and condemnation of God, yet God actually declares people righteous. Now, has God lost his mind? <laughs> Is God somehow playing a game and winking? You know, I don't see your sin. God is not playing some kind of game. Is this some kind of legal fiction? Some people accuse us Protestants. They're saying, you guys are making up legal fiction, they say. Because a God who is holy and righteous and just, no way can declare somebody who is inherently unrighteous to be righteous. You're making that up. No, we're not, we're saying. This is the good news of the gospel. That God declares from heaven... People who are inherently bad people, 
you and me and everybody else. There is none good. There's none righteous. No, not one. There is none who seeks after God. <laughs> we, our mouths are, you know, open sepulchers. Look at Romans again sometime. Uh, you know, our, our tongue is like that of a viper, of an asp, full of poison. Bad things come out of us. Because we have a wicked heart, wicked things come out of us. That's not who I really am. How many times do we have to watch a celebrity say that after they've said something really egregious? And then they want to apologize and get their career back on track and they say, that was not really me. Oh, yes, it was. <laughs> yes, yes, it was. And yes, it is when it's you and me and we say something really ugly. That is who we really are. Jesus said, don't worry about what goes into a man. That's not going to defile you. It's what's coming out of your heart that is going to defile you. The adulteries, the fornications, the theft, the murder, the unclean speech, the lying, all of that is coming out of a wicked heart that is, was born that way because of the fall of Adam. We've been like that since we were conceived. Again, Psalm 51, David says... You know, I was conceived in sin. I was brought forth in iniquity. He's not making, he's not minimizing his sin. He's not making excuses for what he's done. He's maximizing it. He said, I committed adultery and murder because I've been evil from my birth. I've been that way since I was conceived. That I was born a murderer and an adulterer. Now, how can God declare somebody like that righteous? God declares people like you and me who are evil, wicked, unrighteous people inherently. He declares us yet to be righteous in his sight because by his grace he has given you the gift of faith and as you were given by God's spirit the ability to believe on his son, you trusted in Jesus, in his deity, in his humanity, you trusted in his perfect life for you. You trusted in his death on the cross for you. You trusted in his resurrection for you. And the moment you believed, God declared you righteous. Not because you now are somehow inherently righteous. You're still that same person, though you've been born again by the Spirit of God, and you still have the remaining corruption. Nevertheless, on, on the record of God's books, you have been acquitted of your evil ways. You have been declared righteous for the sake of Jesus Christ. Now, this is the illustration I use again and again and again with our kids, our little children, our young people here. I'll say it so you understand what we're talking about here. All right? Summer's coming to an end. But we'll pretend for the time being it's, uh, you know, July 5th here. And you have been uh, let off the leash, and you have been running uh, to your heart's content all day in July in middle Georgia. And you are one sweaty mess. <laughs> From head to toe, you have sweat and dirt all over your body. Now... Let me ask you kids, do you think mom and dad are just going to tuck you in the sheets <laughs> in that condition? No way, right? 
they are not going to put you in to bed right away. What are we going to do first? You know what we're going to do, right? We're going to take a bath and we're going to get you some new clothing, aren't we? Now, what I want you kids to understand, that is what God does for you when you believe in Jesus. He takes away all your filth. He washes you completely. And then he gives you new garments. And the new garment that he puts on you is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You and I wear the righteousness of Christ. You see, a lot of Christians and a lot of evangelicals, they all know that Jesus forgives sins. I mean, that, that's pounded into us. And you could probably ask any Christian here in LaGrange, what does it gain you to believe in Jesus Christ? And the first thing they'll tell you is, my sins are washed away. They know that. But the thing that they'll probably fail to tell you, if you press them, is there more? They'll probably fail to tell you that they are declared righteous in the sight of God. They have the righteousness of Jesus imputed to them. Friends, you have to have both of those to be justified. If you are simply washed of your sins, if the dirt is washed away and you get no clothing, you're still not fit for society. Okay? <laughs> you cannot go out naked like that. And you and I cannot go out like that either when it comes to our standing before God. God sees to it that he clothes you. He not only washes away the bad stuff, but he clothes you in a seamless and perfectly righteous garment. Those two things are what constitutes justification. The forgiveness of sins and the imputation of righteousness, both of which are received by faith alone in Jesus Christ. So let's think together. We're not here in Romans 4, we're in Romans 3, but just imagine that many months later I get to Romans 4 as we're preaching through Romans, and we come to the story of Abraham. What does, why does Paul bring up Abraham? Paul brings up Abraham because he wants you to see that that already was shown to you way back in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis preaches the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Here you've got this elderly man. He doesn't have a child via Sarah. They are childless. And yet God, seemingly, almost, almost like a joke, has told him he's going to be the father of many nations. How in the world will that happen? It's only going to happen by faith in the promise of God. Naturally, it's not supposed to happen. And yet, we know that it does happen. Now, Abraham and Sarah forgot that, and, you know, they gave Hagar to be his wife, and she conceived, and you have that mess in the Middle East today because of it. But it was always to be by way of promise. And that was always to be pointing us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. How can we... Good as dead, sinners, ever hope to have life eternal only through faith in the promise of God's provision. And in our case, the provision is not only a, a child, Isaac and Jacob, who lead to a great multitude of believers throughout the world, but for us, the promise was God's own son, that in the fullness of time, God would send Jesus Christ into the world and that he would live a righteous life and he would die on that cross and whosoever believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So friends, this is not, as Roman Catholics accuse us, legal fiction. 
If you're believing in Jesus Christ tonight, you are righteous. Let me say this reverently. You are righteous as Jesus is. You are as righteous as Jesus. Now, how in the world can I say that? Because your righteousness is Jesus' righteousness. And it's a gift. It's a gift from God to you. Did you earn it? No. Did you merit it? No. Did you receive it because God looked down the quarter of time and saw that you would have faith? No. It was a gift of God by His grace alone. You know... D. James Kennedy made that line famous that we sometimes ask in session meetings when we're interviewing people, if God should say, if you should die and God should say, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And of course, the first thing we probably should say is, well, inherently within ourselves, you shouldn't let me in. But because of the work of Jesus Christ on my behalf and the grace that you gave me to believe in him and him alone It is the merits and the life and the death and person of Jesus Christ that gains me entrance into this place of glory. It's not because I'm better than anybody. It's not because I'm inherently righteous yet. That's a different subject. (laughs) One day you will be inherently righteous. But that's not the doctrine of justification. Justification and sanctification are next-door neighbors. But, but you don't cross from one into the other. And you need to hear that because, you know, I've been doing this long enough now that I'm seeing errors that we saw 20 years ago uh, on the Internet. Now we're seeing them again. And you don't want to confuse or conflate justification and sanctification. That's what Rome does. Rome says, the harder you work at your Christian life and the more sanctified you become, the more justified you become. No, 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 no. You are justified by faith alone in Christ alone, no matter your level of sanctification. The weakest believer in this church has as much justification as the strongest believer in this church. The wobbly two-year-old toddler in this church with newfound faith is as justified as somebody who's been walking with the Lord for 80 years in this church. I used to say this when he was alive, he's gone to be with the Lord, but I used to say you are as justified as Billy Graham. Because your first instinct is to say, oh, there's no way. (laughs) I can't be as justified as Billy Graham. Billy Graham, he's a man of God. (laughs) Friend, you're justified by faith in Christ. Billy Graham has the same righteousness you have. Now, he may have been more sanctified than you. And he was. <laughs> He's more sanctified than all of us here, put together. <laughs> but he was never more justified. He, he was never more righteous in, in, in the law book of God than you and me. Because we are all justified by Christ. He, Christ, who his righteousness is how we stand. So this is what Paul is saying here. Being justified as a gift, verse 24, by his grace. No one will boast in heaven except in the person of Jesus. 
Jesus gets all the glory because my justification is entirely upon Jesus. I had nothing to do with it. Jonathan Edwards said, no, might be John Owen. Yeah, either way, they're both great men. <laughs> you have done nothing for your justification except to sin that warranted it in the first place. All you contribute is the sin. All, everything else is God's grace. It's his gift. All you and I do is receive that gift. And even our ability to receive it is a gift from God. Our faith is the empty hand that reaches out to Jesus and thinks, if I could just touch the edge of his robe, I'll be healed. That's faith. But even that ability, the woman with the bleeding problem, she reached out to Jesus in faith because God gave her the faith to do that. There were lots of people touching Jesus in that crowd. That's why the disciples are so astonished when Jesus said, who touched me? And the disciples like, Lord, everybody touched you. No, somebody touched me in faith because somebody had been given the grace of God. That woman had been given the grace of God to believe in him in a way that others were not believing in him. And she was saved. And so Jesus would say to her and many, many others, go, your faith has made you well. But that faith was always a gift from the Lord. Well, I need to bring it to a close. If you don't know yet peace with God, the way you gain that peace is through faith in Jesus Christ. That's where you have to start. If you are not yet certain whether you're going to go to heaven or not, if you should die, if you're not certain whether you're in a right standing with God tonight, what do I do? What do you do? You begin by confessing yourself to be a sinner. You confess Romans chapter 3, verse 23. You say, Lord, I too am a part of that word all who have sinned and fall short of your glory. That's the first thing you need to do. You acknowledge to God that you have sinned and that your sins deserve the just wrath and condemnation of God. Just like David, look at Psalm 51 in your own time. Read Psalm 51, meditate on what David is saying. David isn't hoping that his good works will outweigh what he's done in evil. He is saying, Lord, I've sinned against you and you alone, which is an amazing statement. So you have to start there. You have to say, I'm a sinner. I have fallen short of the glory of God. God should not let me into heaven. I deserve judgment. I deserve to go to hell. I deserve eternal separation from God because my sins. And listen, you say, oh, pastor, that's too much. No, listen, even if it's a small sin, it's a small sin against an infinite God. Which makes it an infinite sin because you're sinning against the majesty, the glory of God. You know, it's like if you sin against me, that's one thing. If you sin against your grandmother, that's even worse because of the age of your grandma. <laughs> okay? Everybody see that? It matters who you sin against. Um, and, and so, yes, even your Piccadillo sins deserve judgment from God. That's why, you know, you, you see, you know, sometimes what seems like a small sin to us, and we think, wow, God was pretty severe. Moses struck the rock rather than speaking to it. 
And God says, you're not coming into the promised land. You're dying in the wilderness. And we think, wow, that was pretty tough. You know, Saul doesn't wait for Samuel. Samuel's late. Samuel is late. Saul is right. And the people are leaving. And Saul's getting nervous about this and says, all right, let's get the sacrifice going here. And yet God says to Saul, I'm taking the kingdom away from you. So even things that from our perspective, they may seem like small things, but our God is infinitely holy. He's holy, holy, holy. And so, yes, all our sins speak up against us and we deserve eternal judgment. Now, I don't say that to scare you into heaven. I want you to know the reality of your situation by nature so that you will see the beauty of Jesus. You see, the worse you see your own situation, the more lovely Jesus becomes. I think it's a whole lot easier to sing amazing grace than to believe grace really is amazing. I think secretly, deep down, we think, oh, yeah, you know, I should have been shown grace because I'm actually a pretty good guy. And, and we fail to realize, no, grace really is amazing because we really are very bad people. And, you know, Mark, Michael Horton wrote a book, Put Amazing Back Into Amazing Grace. You know, Put Amazing Back Into Grace. That we should be amazed. The, the more you see that you fall short of the glory of God, the more beautiful Jesus Christ becomes. The more beautiful the gospel becomes. The more beautiful the good news of the declaration of sinners being forgiven and pardoned and given righteousness that will withstand the scrutiny of God on the day of judgment. That is the most fabulous news ever. You could have a billionaire uncle who dies and leaves you everything, and that would never compare to the good news that you have eternity with God based on the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. And that we should see the beauty of the Lord, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of Jesus Christ. It should not just be an intellectual ascent. You need to get the gospel into your affections. We preach to the mind, but it is so that it will move the affections and the will. That the whole of our being... Listen, nothing will make obedience easier and sweeter than you seeing the loveliness of Jesus Christ and the loveliness of the gospel. If you're, having a tr- if you're having trouble obeying the Lord and keeping his commandments, the problem may not be that you need to you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just try harder at obeying God's command. It may be that you need to see the loveliness of Jesus all the more. You need to see your justification before God and what an amazing thing that is. You know, this is why Protestants, you know, we do so well in writing hymns for the last 500 years. Because we have something to sing about. When we die, we are going to be present with the Lord. We're not going to purgatory for thousands of years. Who wants to sing about that? <laughs> you know, the, 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 the gospel makes all the difference, even in very practical things like singing. So if you don't know where you are or where you stand with God, you confess your sins, you believe on Jesus Christ, you say, Lord, help me to believe. Lord, it's be like that man with the son who kept throwing himself into the fire. Lord, help me. 
I've gone to your disciples. They couldn't help me. Do you believe? I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. That's what you may have to pray. I think I believe, Lord, but I'm not sure. Help me to believe. I got a lot of unbelief, Lord. Help me to believe. Help me to trust in you. And the Bible says that if you will confess Jesus with your mouth and you will believe on him from the heart, the gospel promise of the book of Romans is that you will be forgiven and you will be declared righteous in his sight.